thanks goes to God and thanks goes to Heidi uh, for that reading. Great to have it uh, in front of us. Uh, we're going to uh, spend some time in that uh, place we've just read in 1 Peter as we bring our series uh, looking at Peter's first letter to a conclusion. It's very helpful to keep that part of the Bible open. So if you can do that, and uh, I'm going to pray and ask God's help for us now. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this word uh, preserved for us. We pray today that you might make our hearts soft, our ears open, and our wills ready uh, to do what is pleasing to you. Father, by your Holy Spirit, be at work here this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've got this letter in front of us, but it does depend how we hear it a little bit on what the mindset is we bring to listening to it. There's kind of two big worlds that we could be living in. We could be living in a world that says, this is who you are. This is who you are. A collection of cells. We build up from the tiny little building blocks and you've just become, wonderfully, at the end of a very long process, here you are, a blob of cells. If you really believe that, though, you're in a little bit of trouble because if all we are is cells, we need to think a little bit more about what cells are and what they do. It's worth saying cells don't suffer. They live and they die. They don't suffer. Cells don't care and nor should we expect them to. They might multiply, they might not multiply, but they don't care. And cells don't live forever. They're passing, some of them incredibly quickly, from life to death. That's one world that you could live in. I'm not actually convinced that too many people who think that live with the consequences carefully thought out. The second world that we can live in is a different one, a, a, a one that says we're not just a collection of cells, we're the special creation of God, that we're human beings. And as humans, we are much more than cells. We're made, made up of cells, atoms and all sorts of bits, but you've become something, you are someone of far more profound worth than the sum total of the cells that are within you. Now, that's going to matter in what we're looking at here in 1 Peter. So we need the Bible, though, because the Bible will tell us that you, are, you were made for more, made for more than just lichen on a rock by the sea. Yeah? I mean, that they reproduce, they live, they die, they get wet, they get dry. You were made for so much more. You were made for more. And here we see something of that. So let's turn to the Bible to see what we were made for and what the trajectory, what the path of this creation is. As we turn to the Bible, we find a big story in the Bible. The big story in the Bible is that it's all about who? That's right, that's right. It's all, the answer is always Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And the path of the, of the story of Scripture is from creation to new creation, via Jesus, and Jesus' story is one of humiliation, he becomes one of us, and then death on a cross, and then resurrection, and then exaltation back up to be with his Father in heaven. It's this beautiful journey that's written right the way across the Scriptures. 
from the word of God in the first story of creation to the incarnation, the exaltation, and then the return of Jesus. There's a big story going on in the Bible. And what we're going to see today is that we want to join our story with Jesus' story. It'll make all the difference in the world. Of course, there are other stories that we can read. Uh, in particular, this chapter, chapter 5, speaks to us about leadership. And uh, you might read other stories about leadership. Uh, this bloke uh, has written a book called How to Get Rich, or How to Think Like a Billionaire, or Maybe Surviving at the Top, or Time to Get Tough. See, if you read that story and you map your life onto that story, other things will happen. You'll impact other people in a particular way. And we see some of that maybe in, uh, in the United States uh, writ large at the moment. We, however, have a different story. But if you take uh, Mr. Trump's story and you were to write a resume for leadership, what would it look like? Well, the title that you would have would be boss. The motivation, money and power. The attitude, serve me, serve me. That's, that's the attitude of leadership, embodied. And then the reward is a glorious crown. Although you might not say his crown is as glorious as it could be, but uh, a glorious crown, right? That's the outcome. That's what we're gunning for. I'm, I'm collating all of this power, all of this money, so that I can have my will be done. There is, however, a different take. If we go with the Bible's story, if we put together a biblical picture of leadership, let's have a look at what it says in verses 1 to 4 and see if you can pick. Maybe there's some contrast there. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, there's a biblical picture of leadership, and the job title is shepherd. But I want you to see here, it's actually under shepherd. Have a look at verse 2. It says, be shepherds of whose flock? God's flock, yeah? He owns the flock and Jesus is ultimately the good shepherd, isn't he? And so when you and I are entrusted with other people, we're responsible for them. We're only ever under shepherds of the great and ultimate shepherd, Jesus himself. So congratulations, you've just been promoted to the job of under shepherd. It's pretty good, isn't it? What's the motivation for people who are under shepherds? We are to be free and eager, not compelled. We don't lead because we must, and we are encouraged to be eager to serve. Now, that doesn't mean every day you'll jump out of bed going, oh, I can't wait. It, 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 it might not be like that. But if there's this arm-twisted compulsion for what you're doing, you'll serve less than the pattern that is laid out before us. Christian leadership is to be freely given and with eagerness 
we notice that the attitude of the world is serve me. In contrast, Christian leaders are called to humility to provide an example to those that they lead. Now, this is beautiful. If your mindset isn't, I come to the job to say, you do what I want, but instead you say, I will model for you what I want you to do. Come follow me as I embody who I want us to be. That's a, that's a team I want to be a part of. That's a leader that I want to follow. Not the top down, but the walking alongside. Follow me as I follow Jesus, is what the Apostle Paul says. So we're humble and we're worthy of being examples to others. Lastly, the reward is, you might be surprised to note, a glorious crown. Hang on, wasn't the world's reward a glorious crown? And then here it says, a glorious crown. But I want you to see the little bit tacked on the end there. It's a glorious crown later. Have a look with me at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. See, we're waiting for the return of the chief shepherd. When will your leadership job be done, O shepherd? When the chief shepherd comes and relieves you. And what will he bring with him? He'll bring with him a crown of glory. It's really interesting. I, I didn't do this at uh, 8.45, but uh, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, you are my crown who I will glory in before the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he says is the people he's leading will be his crown in the presence of God. Why? He's not going to lift them up and sit them all on his head. That's, that's not what he's saying. But when you are standing firm, who I led in some way, who I served in some way, and you spend eternity with me because in some small way I helped you get there, my joy, my glory, the thing that I will give thanks to God forever will be that I had some small part to play in helping you stand with me in glory. Isn't that great? You are the crown who I glory with in Christ Jesus. Well, who doesn't want a crown like that? Problem is it's not coming today, it's coming later. And I'll return to that in a little while. I, uh, I, re I really like this picture as I, as I was trying to think through what does it mean to join our story with Jesus's? So, so here's Jesus. We could say Jesus is on the right track. That makes sense, doesn't it? Nice, okay. Here's Jesus, the one faithful and obedient follower of God. Where am I? I'm on a different track and I'm bound to a different place. I'm headed to a different station, one of rebellion and ultimately of punishment. That's my path that I'm on at the moment. And what we're encouraged to do today, all of us, if we haven't done it, those of us who have are reminded to do it more and more, is to choose humility by aligning my life with the story and example of my Saviour. Choose humility. See, it's actually a profoundly humble thing to ask Jesus to be your Saviour. You, you can't ask him to be your Saviour and keep your pride. People who have their pride believe that they can save themselves, right? You're in the pool somewhere between New Zealand and Sydney, okay? You're in the pool. The, 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 what's that called? What's the water called? The, excuse me, it's called the ocean. The Tasman Sea, that's what I was going for. Thank you. You're in the ocean. You're midway between... Uh, New Zealand and Sydney, all right? The helicopter flies over and they go, uh, how are you doing down there? No problems. Doing fine. Should get there soon. 
No problems, I've got this. I don't know how good you are at swimming. But I'm going to tell you, we're all going to drown. Every one of us. Some of us might drown trying to stand, tread water right where we are as the helicopter passes over us. We'll just, some of you are really strong. And you will make it maybe a kilometre further away than me. Maybe it's 10 kilometres. It might even be 20. But here's the thing, none of us will make it safely to the other shore. It takes humility to say, save me, I can't do it. And so we always choose humility when we align ourselves with Jesus because we give up that pride that says, I can save myself. So align yourself with Jesus. Choose humility. Cast your cares upon him. Once he's your saviour, he will be your comfort. Once he's your saviour, he will be your comfort. And then there's a beautiful thing that happens. Uh, You guys have heard of uh, delayed gratification. Have you heard of that? Delayed gratification. This is a thing we practice with our kids. No, you can't have it now, but if you're really good, you can have it later. Yes? Whoever wants to wait till later. Steve, you just hit escape and then put me back up. That'd be great. Thanks, mate. Um, So delayed gratification is the thing where we say, pain now, reward later. Okay, it'll be great. And I want to suggest to you that there's actually a, a thing that we need to know as adult Christians, which is a little bit like that. We're aligning again. Here's what, I, here's what I've discovered. There's a thing called delayed glorification. Delayed glorification. Glory will come, but it's not coming today. You can say, I'm a follower of Jesus. You can keep following him your whole life, but the glory will only come at the end. It says in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Delayed glorification. It's coming to you. If you will wait to the very end. Now, he moves from how we should act as leaders to the kind of environment that we lead in. And if I said to you, who do you want to be your enemy? Um, I think most of you would say, no one. Can I pick none of the above? But I want you to see in the passage here, there's actually two enemies. You will have one of two enemies and you need to choose. You'll you'll see the first enemy is quite surprising. Uh, Before I tell you who it is, does anyone know what this is? Come on, what is it? Uh, it, It's it's. It's a tank, so that's good. It's not Russian. Does anyone know what it is? No, no it's not Sherman, it's not German. Okay, that's all right. I just wanted to see if there are any tank nerds out there. It's an M1A1 mine-clearing tank. Anyway, that's good. Mine-clearer, well done, fantastic. So this America, we've got some now ourselves up in the Northern Territory getting very hot, I assume. Um, but that's what it is. Now, if you meet that in your Sunday best, so just stay outside, uh, say you're outside and that's, that's rumbling up the street towards you, what have you got? Nothing. You would feel entirely exposed. How do I oppose this? Now, that's a tank. That's an impressive tank. But what if I told you your attitude could actually make God your enemy? What if I told you that God could be your enemy based on what you choose? Have have a look with me uh, at, um, at what it says here in verses five to six. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. What it's saying here is your pride, the pride that waves the helicopter off, 
The pride that says, I'm doing fine here. That pride makes God your enemy. God will actively oppose the proud. That's terrifying. If, if, if that's terrifying, imagine the living God being opposed to you because of your pride. God opposes the proud. But it says here, he gives grace to the humble. So we need to reject pride. We need to say, I won't go with pride anymore. And instead, we need to do the wonderful thing that is he shows favor to the humble. So seek his favor by being humble. You can meet God and he will humble you on the final day. Or you can humble yourself now and meet him as saviour. Either way, humility is coming, and I know what choice I'd like to have. Now, if you make that choice, if you say, God, I will humble myself, I want to tell you there's someone else who you will make your enemy. Have a look what it says in the following verses. Verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You see, all the sons and daughters of God have a spiritual enemy. Did you know this? The devil isn't merely something to fill a Simpsons cartoon hell with. You know, spiked horns and a trident. That's not, there's a real spiritual entity who is an enemy of all who would name Jesus as Lord. It really is a present spiritual reality. And his desire is to devour those who are trusting in Jesus. If you're afraid of God and it makes you humble, it's good. If you're ignorant of the devil, you should be afraid. It says here our response is to be self-controlled and alert. Alert, we must know that we're walking in enemy territory. He's around You'll hear him roar. And self-controlled because his way to pull us down is through sin and our choices. Be self-controlled and be alert. Be ready for our enemy who would seek to devour us, the devil. How should we resist him? It says in uh, James, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, which is fantastic. The question is, how do we do it? How do we do it? Now, I, I like this picture. I found it, uh, sort of, I was looking for someone standing firm and say, so here she is, uh, looking very unperturbed. Can you see in the background, things aren't looking very happy in whatever place uh, this lady is. Uh, mayhem and chaos uh, coming down the road there, whether it's a fire or something. She looks very chilled out. What we're told here is the antidote to the devil is that you and I, if we have a look at verse 9, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The antidote to the devil is to stand firm, is to stand firm. Now, I I did have, um, a while ago, and I've just remembered it as I'm I'm speaking to you now, uh, there was a sign about uh, and said, um, warning mountain lions, right? I reckon if I'm hiking somewhere where I see a sign that says, warning mountain lions, I'm just out of there. It's, it's, it's the really do not enter is what it says. They should just say do not enter. But it said warning mountain lions. And then it's got underneath it a picture. It says how to resist a mountain lion. <laughs> and so apparently if you turn and run, you exhibit prey behavior and you're a goner. Right? And so what it does, it says 
stand and raise your arms, and then it's got like a, like a voice speech kind of things coming out. Yell back at it, right? And stand firm. Now that ends up being a helpful illustration, doesn't it? The enemy is the devil. He's a roaring lion looking for some. If we just run, you and I will fall. We'll fall, be tripped up by our own sin. Instead, we need to know that in the power of Jesus, who's conquered sin and death and the devil, stand firm, stand tall, and speak. What do we speak? Well, we speak the word of God, don't we? In God's armor. So God has equipped you to stand. You might not have a tank, but you've got some armor. It's there in Ephesians 6. Where do you find it? You find it in God's word. How did Jesus stand firm? spoke the word of God to the devil. We need to know this book. I am who you say I am is a song that we've sung quite a bit recently. The question is, do you know who you are according to this book? God's armor, God's word, and it says here, aware of God's family. Aware of God's family. You know, we suffer in a variety of ways here in Australia, but here's what the encouragement is. Uh, In verse 9, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Well, it is true that other people in very developed parts of the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings we are for being Christians. But there are people in the world who are locked up for being Christians. There are people in the world who in China have been abducted recently in the last month for naming Jesus as Lord. There are people who are in chains now for naming Jesus as Lord. As we are called to stand firm, we think, oh, I can't do it. I can't handle the the mockery of my family. The implications of me standing up for Jesus at work, it's too much. But you think about your brothers and sisters who bear chains and imprisonment, and you say, I can do that. I can stand with my brothers and sisters who are bravely holding on to Jesus elsewhere. Remember God's family and stand firm. Now, has anyone here been watching the tennis? What, what are we doing here? We're finding out whether it's out or in, yes? And everyone does a ooh, and then we get to the thing and we find out and either we're cheering or we're crying depending on whether the ball was in or out. Fantastic. This replays where the ball went. There's another game, slightly more glorious, I would suggest to you, this one, um, where it uses ball tracking as well. Now, in this, what happens is that the red bit is where the ball went when it hit the pad of the batsman. The blue bit is where they assume it will go if it didn't hit the pad. Is everyone learning something about DRS today? That's fantastic. Outstanding, all right. So, so this didn't happen. The ball just dropped dead here because it hit the, hit the pad. But it shows the trajectory. It shows where it was going to go because it's very smart and uses radar and, and various bits and pieces. So, okay, that's great. That's, tr- that, that's ball tracking, right? I want you to know there's a way to know where the world is heading. Even though we haven't been there yet, there's a way to know where the world is heading. And it's only possible to know where the world is heading if we read this book here. This book will reveal to you where the world is going to land. It'll also reveal to you who's going to be in and out. But I want you to know that if you read your Bible, you'll know what the future of the world is. Have a look with me at verses 10 to 11. 
And the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. See, there is a day coming when Jesus will restore those who have suffered for a little while. And so I want you to know the trajectory tracking is trustworthy. I, I tripped over this at the uh, earlier service. There's a lot of T's here, right? In the Bible, the trajectory tracking is trustworthy. In other words, God is telling you what will happen and you can trust it. He's saying things about the future. One day, the humiliated will be lifted up. One day, the pride of the rich and the, they will be brought low. There's going to be a day coming, and it is coming soon. Uh, I don't know if you've seen on the back of um, the, the garbage trucks. I was trying to think of this. But on the back of the garbage trucks, it has this sign. Vehicle may reverse at any time. And I, I'm always caught out by that because you kind of figure it's got to go around, I assume, forward. Most of But if they overshoot, I assume they, they edge it back a little bit. Or whatever. But here's the thing. We don't ever anticipate that it's going to come backwards. So it needs a sign that says, caution, may reverse at any time. I want you guys to know that there is a great reversal coming for the world where the proud are put low and where the low are lifted up. There is a great reversal coming and we need to have caution because we may reverse at any time. So what should we do? How should we live if we know the great reversal is coming? If God values humility, if he'll humiliate the proud? Well, there's an intriguing little bit at the end where, uh, have a look with me at, um, at verse 13. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my true son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, so the, obviously at uh, morning tea, we all need to go and greet one another with a holy kiss. Or not. As is socially appropriate and right about our personal distances. And all that. No, that's not what we're going to do. But I think it's intriguing. He says here, she who is in Babylon, what is he talking about? Has, has Peter got a friend in Babylon? No. The people of God were taken from Jerusalem, the holy city, far away after their sin. They were taken to the enemy city, to Babylon. It was a sign that the end had come for them. And it was a city that was opposed to everything God stood for. Now, she who is in Babylon actually isn't a friend of Peter's. It's actually a way of talking about the church in Rome. The church in Rome. She, the bride of Christ, is in Babylon, the city opposed to God. What was that? The center of the empire. And so he's saying greetings from the church in Rome. But here's the thing. It's a church that knows it has an enemy. It's a church that's outside its heavenly home. And so what should we do here in Orem Park? Well, we're a church today who are outside our heavenly home. We long to be in our true country again. And so we need to stand firm as we wait for the great reversal to come. We also need to think about, if you're a leader today, you need to think about whether your job is to squash cells on the path to power or whether you want to pick up the staff and serve as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. 
I want to say if you're a leader, lead beloved sheep, not worthless cells as faithful shepherds. That'll transform our leadership if we do it. Lead beloved sheep as faithful shepherds. Thirdly, I want to speak to those who are suffering today. A road that at times can feel incredibly lonely. Who knows my pain? Who knows my suffering? Who gets me? And we want to do a better job of doing that with you, church, over the course of this year, that we may know one another more deeply. It takes time and effort, and it takes a willingness to share. But amidst all of that, there is a word here to those who are suffering. It's one of my favorite bits of, uh, of this letter. In verse 7, it tells us, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You never walk a road of suffering alone. There is always a heavenly father who walks alongside you. He never stops caring no matter how long the road may be. And so as you wait for the great reversal, entrust your anxieties to the God who cares for you, knowing that he never leaves you and never forsakes you. Lastly, a word to all of us. It's really a choice that we need to make from where we started this morning. We need to pick which universe we'll live in. We need to live with the implications of the world we choose. We can choose to live in a world of cells and thoughtlessly pursue our selfish agenda. Or we can live in a world with humans, destined for a great reversal, saved by the blood of Jesus, serving as shepherds with one another. I want to encourage you this morning to choose the universe that you'll live in, live with its implications and let it inform how you wait for that great day. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for the wonderful way your son humbled himself, suffered death on the cross, rose again, sits at your right hand and will return to judge. Father, we long for the day of his returning. We pray that we would align our lives with his destiny. We pray that you would make us faithful, humble people, who look forward to the day of your return by serving those around us eagerly and with great humility. Father, thank you that while we wait, you are the God who cares and we ask for your comfort and compassion both for us and so that we may comfort others with the same. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.